This is Africa Digest. Good evening, it's exactly 5 o'clock Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm Tato Tolo, driving the show with uh, Tabis Alehoko and Neto Chemani. Top stories on Africa Digest this hour. The Roman Catholic Church issues a strong plea to political leaders to strike a deal by Christmas to stem the crisis over the fate of President Joseph Kabila. Zambia and Zimbabwe sign a memorandum of understanding to run the Kaza Univisa. And of course, we've got the news right now. And Tavis is on standby with the latest in Channel Africa News. A very good afternoon. Nigeria has promised to protect and hand out hefty rewards to whistleblowers. As Africa's most populous country battles both endemic corruption and a sharp decline in oil revenues. Finance Minister Kemi Odiasan says whistleblowers can be entitled to between 2.5 and 5% of funds recovered from information they provide about corruption. Odiasan says the policy was aimed at boosting awareness of financially related crime and improving public confidence in public institutions. The Roman Catholic Church in the DRC has issued a strong plea to political leaders to strike a deal by Christmas to stem an explosive crisis over the fate of President Joseph Kabila. The call by the Congolese National Conference of Bishops sponsoring key talks between actors who signed last October's agreement and those who boycotted it it became after at least 31 people were killed during protests over Kabila's refusal to step down at the end of his mandate. Jan Noel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The death toll of both last Monday and Tuesday demonstrations that erupted in different provinces of the Democratic Republic of Congo, including here in the capital city Kinshasa, was released on Wednesday by the Congolese National Police. Protesters were demanding President Joseph Kabila to step down as his second and last term expired on Monday, December 19th. Police whose presence in several areas of the country then used the gunshots and tear gas to disperse them. A Harari judge has ordered Zimbabwe's controversial First Lady Grace Mugabe to return three properties that she seized from a Lebanese businessman in a botched 1.35 million US dollar diamond ring deal. Clement Piri has ordered President Robert Mugabe's wife to remove her representatives from the properties that she seized after Lebanese national Jamal Ahmed failed to repay the money that was paid by her for a polished diamond ring. The ring had been meant to be Mugabe's wedding anniversary to Grace. The year 2016 marked the 20th anniversary of the Mugabe's wedding. Grace demanded a refund 
after she discovered that the diamond ring was polished. A court in Egypt has rejected an appeal by the former anti-government watchdog chief against the jail sentence he received for spreading false news, but it suspended the sentence. Uh, President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi sacked Hisham Janaina, head of the Central Auditing Organization in March, and appointed a fact-finding mission. Uh, that concluded Janaina had misled the public by overestimating the scale of corruption. Sri Lankan customs authorities have impounded a consignment of aprons from India featuring images of the Buddha. A government spokesperson, Dharmasena Kahawanda, says it is an offence to trade in merchandise that could cause offence even though the aprons were only transiting Sri Lanka en route to Slovenia. Nearly 70% of Sri Lanka's 21 million people are Buddhists. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Six minutes after five o'clock, good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. I'm your host, Tato Tolo, with you for the next 54 minutes, of course, unpacking all the stories that are of continental importance. Remember that we relish the thought of hearing from you as the Channel Africa listener. So all you have to do is to head onto our social media platforms, tweet us at Channel Africa One, as well as like our Facebook page, Channel Africa, and leave your comments there as, of course, we unpack the stories that we have for you on the show here today. Now, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Roman Catholic Church has issued a strong plea to political leaders to strike a deal by Christmas to stem an explosive crisis over the fate of President Joseph Kabila. The call by the Congolese National Conference of Bishops, sponsoring key talks between actors who signed last October's uh, agreement and those who boycotted it, it has come after at least 31 people were killed during protest over Kabila's refusal to step down at the end of his mandate. Jean-Noël Bamwezi reports from Kinshasa. The death toll of both last Monday and Tuesday demonstrations that erupted in different provinces of the Democratic Republic of Congo, including here in the capital city Kinshasa, was released on Wednesday by the Congolese National Police. Protesters were demanding President Joseph Kabila to step down as his second and last term expired on Monday, December 19th. Police was present in several areas of the country, then used the gunshots and tear gas to disperse them. Some people used the opportunity to try and loot other citizens' shops and belongings, and indeed, most of people who have been killed were looters, according to the Congolese National Police spokesperson, Colonel Pierrot Mwanamputu. In Kinshasa, nine in total, province of Congo Central in Matadi, three people killed while looting a bakery, shops and stores, two people killed in Boma while looting the Boma cart, 
in North Kivu, five mile mile. Militia were killed. A policeman, a National Army soldier, a South African from the UN force and a civilian were killed. And in Okatanga, eight people killed. The Congolese National Police has released such a death toll while the dialogue second round resumed on Wednesday here in Kinshasa after a three-day suspension that allowed bishops a trip to the Vatican City in Rome. The talks under the Congolese National Conference of Bishops facilitation bring together 30 delegates from actors who signed the last October political agreement and those who decided to boycott the agreement. Participants said the discussions include delegates from the ruling majority, the opposition rally, the opposition part of last October dialogue and the civil society. The bishops have extracted 18 of the 30 delegates from both sides to work in commissions on this Thursday and Friday and as the tension continues to grow the Roman Catholic Church has then issued a strong plea to political leaders to strike a deal by Christmas to stem an explosive crisis here. Bishop Marcel Utembi is the Congolese National Conference of Bishops Chairman. Our wish is to conclude before Christmas and if bishops realize political actors do not reach any agreement on the transitional period management will have to take all the consequences since the church is not there to just watch the sad situation of Congolese. President Joseph Kabila, who has ruled this country since 2001, is constitutionally barred from seeking a third term, although both a controversial recent constitutional court order and the last October political agreement have allowed him to remain on power until a new elected president can be inaugurated. Meanwhile, veteran opposition leader Etienne Tisekedi, who is also the president of the opposition rally, has called on people of the Democratic Republic of Congo to stop recognizing Joseph Kabila as the president of this country since he has no more legitimacy and legality. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. The results of a new coast of, uh, of hunger in Africa study indicate that uh, African study indicate that Madagascar's economy loses 1.5 million US dollars per year, which is equivalent to 14.5 percent of the country's of, uh, of the country's gross domestic product and uh, due to the malnutrition the report highlights the extent of social and economic losses caused by child malnutrition in a general uh, country. Madagascar has the fifth highest rate of uh, stunting in the world that uh, the, the study aims to enhance African government's awareness of uh, child malnutrition. More from David Orr, Communications Officer for Southern Africa United Nations World Food Programme. Well, this is a study that is led by the African Union with a number of other partners, including the United Nations World Food Programme. And it is conducted continent-wide. It has been undertaken in 10 countries in Africa so far. Basically, this study calculates the loss to a country's economy of undernutrition. They use quite complex systems and means of data calculation to assess the actual 
loss to the gross domestic product, GDP, of the country per year. Mm. And it's a way of really bringing home to people the fact that undernutrition is not just a few random children missing out on a meal and going hungry. It has severe implications, not just for the individual, but for the society as a whole. To which extent, really, David, can child undernutrition or malnutrition really have um, social or economic um, impact on, on a society? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that undernutrition can have not just severe physical effects on a child, it can actually have a mental impact in the sense that undernutrition, first of all, leads to stunting, which is low growth, low height for age. The child does not grow up to be as tall as other children if it doesn't get the right nutrition in the crucial first few years of life. Mm. This also affects the cognitive development, the development of the brain, which in turn has all sorts of implications for the way that child performs in school, for the health of that child, for the development of that child into an adult, and ultimately for the extent to which that person can contribute to the economy in terms of productivity at work. So it has lifelong implications. Mm-hmm. And we now know that it has had a tremendous economic implications on Madagascar. If you can just tell us briefly about that. Well, that's right. The, the calculation is that hunger is costing Madagascar 14.5% of its GDP mm-hmm. per annum. billion per annum, which is a huge amount of money. Um, In fact, it's one of the higher figures in these cost of hunger studies. It ranges depending on the country. I mean, in some countries, it's been as low as 3% of GDP, but 14.5% is a huge amount. And it just shows the the extent to which malnutrition, chronic malnutrition, is endemic in in Madagascar. Just reflecting a bit on the fact that uh, Madagascar happens to have the fifth highest rate of stunting in the world, does the World Food Programme have any kind of intervention programs as it were uh, in assisting in Madagascar? I think three of, of the countries with the highest levels of stunting are in Africa. So you've got Burundi, you've got Ethiopia, and you've got Madagascar among the top five. Um, And a lot of WFP's operations, not just in Madagascar, but worldwide, are geared towards ensuring that young children, um, and not just young children, but also pregnant uh, women, nursing and nursing mothers have the right nutrition uh, at this crucial period of their lives. We talk about the first 1,000 days of being really vital in a, in a person's development. This is the, from the moment of conception to two years of age. And if, if, if a, a person 
doesn't get the nutrition it needs. And we're talking really here, I think, about a, a balanced diet. That's David Orr, communica- Communications Officer for Southern Africa United Nations World Food Program, talking to Homo Mopulani. All Lesotho nationals living in South Africa illegally have until the 31st of December 2016 to pay for the Lesotho special permit or face deportation. Application centers have opened up at six Lesotho border posts to receive the applications. Applications made this year will be received and the supporting documents can be submitted in the year 2017 by the end of March. If you are one of those that still have not applied and you are traveling to and from Lesotho, then use the mobile visa facilitation centers at the six border posts. And if you are unsure about what to do, then phone the VSF call center on 087-230-0411. That's 087-230-0411. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Seventeen minutes after five o'clock Central African time, you're still tuned into Africa Digest, exclusive to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A report by the World Health Organization has documented how most adults in Africa have at least one risk factor that increases their chances of developing a life-threatening non-communicable disease or NCD, including heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, and chronic obstructive lung disease. Previous research had predicted that millions of people on the continent will die from NCDs by the year 2020 if nothing is done to address the growing problem. The new report also shows that world deaths from NCDs will reach, will reach an estimated 44 million uh, within the next four years, an increase of 15% from the WHO's 2010 estimate. Uh, Abdi Kamal Asiladi is the director of the Non-Communicable Diseases Cluster at the World Health Organization a Regional Office for Africa. The report has found that the risk factor is for the development of non-communicable disease is on the rise in our region. Particular attention is the one of hypertension or high blood pressure, in which our region, the prevalence of the hypertension is among the highest in the world in our region. And we knew that, you know, tobacco use, alcohol use, and obesity, that is increasing. But we never thought that hypertension would be a huge problem in our region. And that was quite a surprise. And we are now looking on ways to control it and also to know more what are the causes of that. We've seen in recent years how much of the world's attention and resources were directed towards the threat posed by emerging viruses such as Zika and Ebola. Do you think that this has resulted in countries sort of losing sight on the enormous health dangers posed by NCDs? I think it is, uh, those are uh, the Ebola and the Zika are COVID disease. And we knew that in our region, one of the regions, or I think the only region I could say that has the devil burden. On one side is the COVID disease, which is still 
is still struggling. Our health system is still uh, overloaded with the prevention and control of communicable disease. And then on the other side, you see the rising, the rapid increase of non-communicable disease. So we still now we have the double burden. On one side is communicable disease, on the other side is non-communicable disease. And it will be in the coming years a huge burden to our health system. What are the major behavioral risk factors, doctor, that cropped up in many of the countries that you surveyed? And were the results the same for both men and women? Some of the risk factors is higher on males and some are on females, for example, obesity, hypertension. Those are more, you see more females having that than males. Then you look at the alcohol consumption or harmful use of alcohol and tobacco use is more on males. So it depends which risk factors, but overall, both males and females, the risk factor is on the right. It's rapidly increasing, and unless we do something about it, non-communicable disease will be a huge burden, and it might, in the coming years, it might even overtake that of communicable disease. The risk factors, as you asked me, the risk factors that for non-communicable disease are many, but the major ones that we are trying to control and prevent are uh, four risk factors that are related to lifestyle or behavior and four that are what we call intermediate or physiological in nature. So the four that are lifestyle are tobacco use, harmful use of alcohol, consumption of unhealthy diet, and physical activity. The other four that are intermediate or biological are uh, high blood pressure, high blood sugar or glucose, high cholesterol. The last is obesity or overweight. These risk factors are interlinked. The first behavioral risk factors will lead to that of intermediate or biological risk factors, which will then cause or lead to chronic disease or non-communicable diseases. You'll agree with me that these diseases can be life-threatening and debilitating. Some rob people and families of those who otherwise should be enjoying their most productive years. But where does the region even begin to reverse these trends? Yeah, I think there are, um, WHO came up with a, a global action plan in which we support and encourage member states to do similar national action plans. And I think there are a set of best buys or interventions that if the member states implement, will likely control or prevent these risk factors and subsequently the development of non-communicable diseases. I think the major one is, as you might know, Combating non-communicable disease, most of the interventions are outside the health sector because it involves population-based risk factors, and that is, like, for example, reduction of tobacco use. We have to work with the Minister of Finance, uh, Commerce, and so on. So multi-sectoral action plans or that all the other sectors should come together and develop a plan to reduce NCDs. Then what we need is the health sector approach in which we need to include the primary health care services that we provide to people to include also some NCD intervention, screening blood pressure, screening cancer, providing treatment to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and so on. So NCD should be part of the essential health package that we provide at the primary health care level. 
Mm. These are a set of steps that we need to do in order to prevent and control NCDs. That's Dr. Abid Abdi Kamal Ali Salad, a director of the Non-Communicable Diseases Cluster at the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa. He was on the line from Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. And now let's have a listen to the Christmas message from South Africa's Deputy Minister, a Deputy President rather, Cyril Ramaphosa. Fellow South Africans, I am honoured to share our government's message with you during this 2016 festive period. On the 10th of this month, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of the signing of our constitution. We continue to draw inspiration from the values and objectives of the constitution of our country, the birth certificate of our nation. During this month, we also mark three years of the passing of our global icon, Nelson Mandela, the father of our democracy. As we celebrate the legacy of Madiba, we rededicate ourselves to the ideals of building a non-racial, non-sexist and a democratic society in which all our people, black and white, can live in peace and harmony. On this occasion, we remind ourselves that the adoption of the Constitution was the culmination of decades of struggle waged by our people at home and abroad. As we celebrate these achievements, we honor those who made huge sacrifices in the struggle for peace, freedom, and democracy. We also honor those who worked to build and to develop our country. As we mark this milestone, we rededicate ourselves to the core values of our constitution. We extend our gratitude to the people of our region, Southern Africa, our continent, and the world who provided us with material, moral, and political support during the struggle for democracy. In the two decades since the Constitution was adopted, we have worked together to give effect to the rights and freedoms it proclaims. Working together, we have lifted millions of our people out of poverty by providing houses, electricity, water, and sanitation to millions of households. We have built equipped and staffed new hospitals, new clinics, schools, and colleges. For much of the last 20 years, we have had a growing economy that, together with our transformative policies, has provided many opportunities to our people that never existed before. As a nation, we are hard at work to develop our people through education and training, to improve their lives through quality health care and social support, and to grow our economy by expanding our productive capacity. This year, we have sustained our investment in transport, energy, telecommunications, and water infrastructure. Our country has become more attractive as a destination for investment. This has come about and has been done through the creation of special economic zones, in a number of areas in our country, the establishment of Invest South Africa to assist investors in getting projects going faster and through targeted incentive programs. Through joint efforts of government, business and labor, we are hard at work to increase investment opportunities, support small enterprise development, 
address youth unemployment and maintain South Africa's investment grade status. Deliberations among the social partners on the introduction of a national minimum wage are nearing conclusion, with most stakeholders supportive of the proposed wage of 20 rand per hour. The introduction of a national minimum wage will go a long way in reducing wage inequality and wage poverty. It is a matter of great concern to us that more than 50% of employed South Africans earn below 20 rand an hour. We are grateful for the efforts made by leaders of labor, business and communities to develop a common approach to these critical issues facing our country. All social partners are agreed that 20 rand per hour is not a living wage. They consider it as a starting point to begin the process of reducing wage inequality. In 2016, we continued to work to improve the health and the well-being of our people by intensifying our efforts to end AIDS and TB. We have provided antiretroviral treatment to well over 3.4 million South Africans infected with HIV. We have significantly reduced mother-to-child transmission of HIV and look forward to zero transmission in the next few years. Working together with our social partners, we have embarked on major campaigns to prevent new infections, particularly among adolescent girls and young women. Social trends like older men having sex with younger women continue to undermine our prevention efforts as young girls become targets of macho mobile men with money. We are nevertheless certain that working together, we can create an AIDS-free generation in our lifetime, especially if we empower our young girls and young women through education and economic opportunity. Always missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on Listen and enjoy Channel Africa Radio. It's as easy as that. Channel Africa Radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
Time now is, is uh, 5.30, meaning that uh, Tabi Solohoku is on standby with the latest in Channel Africa News headlines. Thanks, and in the news headlines, Nigeria has promised to protect and hand out hefty rewards to whistleblowers as Africa's most populous country battles both endemic corruption and a sharp decline in oil revenues. The Roman Catholic Church in the DRC has issued a strong plea to political leaders to strike a deal by Christmas to stem an explosive crisis over the fate of President Joseph Kabila. And the Sri Lankan customs authorities have impounded a consignment of aprons from India featuring images of the Buddha. Channel Africa. Thank you very much, Tabi. So time now is 28 minutes before the top of the hour, 6 o'clock. You're still tuned in to Africa Midday, exclusive to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Zambia and Zimbabwe have signed a memorandum of understanding to run the Kazi Univisa. The facility will allow visitors to, to the two countries entry at a fee of only 50 US dollars for 30 days. The facility aims at having a common visa within the Southern African Development Community and Africa. More from Hilda Akekelwa. Two years ago, a pilot project was launched by Zambia and Zimbabwe to avail tourists to the two countries with a common visa that allowed them to enter and visit tourist attractions without restrictions. Kaza Uni Visa administrators say due to overwhelming global support and appreciation, the two countries have decided to develop the Kaza Uni Visa facility into a long-term program as a step towards the creation of the Okavango Zambezi River Basin, a world-class conservation and tourism destination of choice. Speaking after the signing ceremony, Zambia's Home Affairs Minister Stephen Campiongo said the facility will make travel easier for tourists and therefore appealed to tour operators to increase marketing efforts in order to attract more international visitors to the two countries and the Sadiq region in general. The realization of our vision requires moving from competition to cooperation. We must move from profit maximization to wealth creation. As government, we wish to call upon all stakeholders in the tourism sector to focus more on wealth creation than profit maximization to attract not only more tourists to our countries, but to create more opportunities for tourism development in both Zambia and Zimbabwe. In his remarks, Zimbabwe's Home Affairs Minister Ignatius Chombo spoke of the benefits the facility will present to the Kaza partner countries of Angola, Botswana, Namibia, Zambia and Zimbabwe. The resumption of the Univisa between the two countries is a giant step towards realizing the SADC heads of state and government vision for a common visa regime with the Republic of Zimbabwe and the Republic of Zambia being in the first phase of three other phases to come. Following this project's success, Univisa will be cascaded to Angola, Botswana, and Namibia in the second phase.
The third phase will cover Mozambique, South Africa, and Swaziland. And the fourth phase will include the remaining SADC countries, that is DRC, Lesotho, Mauritius, Malawi, Madagascar, and the Seychelles Islands. Primary beneficiaries of this project will be our economies through travel and trade facilitation. And speaking to Channel Africa, Casa Director Crispin Nambota said while tourists love to view wild animals, there is need to protect the animals through unified laws and regulations. We have situations where animals are protected on one side, it's a national park. On the other side, it is a hunting area or it is an open area, a communal area. We've come up with a concept of transparent conservation areas. These are areas that uh, straddle across borders as protected areas and open areas. So we, we want to ensure that when the animals move from here to Zimbabwe, yeah, they are protected on the other side. So we want to have joint management of shared resources. You will also agree with me that the fish that is in here, in this river here, yeah, they know no boundaries, whether they've crossed it to Zimbabwe or to the Zambian side. Yeah? But what it is is that uh, we have uh, fish bands during breeding seasons. In Zimbabwe, they don't observe that. In Zambia, we observe that. So right now, there's a fish band. We don't fish in Zambia. But on the Zimbabwe side, they will continue fishing. So it is the same as uh, you know, law enforcement. When you have uh, a bango, or bangles, cut up ivory, elephant ivory, yeah, tusk ivory, in uh, Namibia. They say it is worked on, so you can carry it with you. In Zambia, it's an offense. Yeah? Even the punishments have to be you know, unified. There is no way. We have to make them uniform so that at the end of the day, there is synchronization in our approach to issues of shared resources. Namibia hunts elephant. Zambia is not allowed to hunt elephant. And yet you have Siomangwezi National Park on this side, on, on the Zambian side. You have Wabuata National Park on the Namibian side. The elephants crisscross. You have conservancies in Namibia. Those conservancies are allowed to hunt elephants. Our people in Siomangwezi National Park or Sulawana Complex, the area surrounding Siomangwezi National Park, are not allowed to the mission of Kaza Transfrontier Conservation Area is to sustainably manage the Kavango Zambezi ecosystem, its heritage and cultural resources based on best conservation and tourism models for the social economic well-being of the communities and other stakeholders in and around the eco-region through harmonization of policies, strategies and practices. The Kaza Univisa is one of the initiatives that can lead to the achievement of this mission. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingston in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekerwa. As 2016 draws to an end, Doctors Without Borders or MSF says there are major stories that have made a huge impact on the work the International Humanitarian Organization does and around the world. To reflect on these and other stories, we are joined on the line by Bori Lagrange, who is the head of communications at MSF. Welcome. That's a good afternoon to you and good afternoon to your listeners. Now, give us an overview of some of the major stories that mattered the most in the year 2016. 
Yeah, I think it's uh, it'll be fair to say it's been a tough year. Um, I think anybody who's been paying enough attention to what's been happening around the world uh, will know that. Uh, I think uppermost in our minds currently the ongoing crisis as, as a result of the, the Syrian civil war now entering uh, as of next year. It's it's sixth uh, year running. And I think we all saw the, the quite dramatic scenes very recently in East Aleppo where people are now finally being evacuated from uh, a part of the city that was besieged for uh, at least four months. And in this instance, people living uh, still in these uh, enclaves, these besieged areas, were um, cut off from uh, from significant aid, uh, be that humanitarian aid or, or medical assistance. Mm-hmm. And uh, supplies that they had uh, dwindled. Um, and you also know during that conflict in Syria, in fact, uh, many hospitals uh, also came under fire uh, during uh, bombardments by government forces. Mm-hmm. and also uh, the Russians. So that's just one aspect of it. The other, of course, is um, the uh, Mediterranean uh, Sea uh, migration and refugee crisis, where at least this year, we know since the start of the year, almost 5,000 men, women, and children have died while attempting to, to cross the, the sea route. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a significantly higher number than uh, than 2015. And uh, this late in the year, people are still making that crossing a very dangerous one. Uh, we know from our teams who work uh, on the Mediterranean and three rescue craft, uh, they've assisted directly in the, the, the rescue and the, um, bringing people safely on board of, of over 19,000 people from these overcrowded boats. So it means that for us, I mean, we're, we're actually a small drop in the ocean, what mm-hmm. needs are, but we know that at least like one, about it, uh, one of every seven people rescued in the Mediterranean uh, have been uh, people assisted by doctors without borders. Mm-hmm. And then I think uh, we would um, absolutely fail if we didn't mention the ongoing crisis also in uh, Nigeria's Borno State. Mm-hmm. It's an area in Nigeria that's been um, a, very, uh, a very volatile area because of the ongoing conflict between the Nigerian military and the Boko Haram uh, group, and this has displaced upwards of half a million people. Yeah. Many of these people remain trapped uh, also in um, remote uh, villages or enclaves where it's uh, very difficult, if not often impossible, for uh, organizations to independently reach them with the aid that they need, and this, uh, in our case, uh, medical care. We also know that this has led to the closure of markets. People haven't been able to cultivate crops. So this has led to a nutrition crisis which um, effectively has seen uh, the deaths of many children under five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that uh, I don't think has been very well reported on in the media uh, if we compare it to, let's say, for instance, the conflict in Syria um, over time. So definitely on our own continent, uh, several uh, several areas where, where people are having an incredibly tough time. And I think also our attention should turn to the situation in um, Tanzania, where hundreds of thousands of uh, Burundian refugees are cramped into uh, three camps mm-hmm. uh, facing quite unlivable uh, conditions that have a negative impact on their health and well-being. Now, um, I, I imagine you face quite a lot of challenges. I mean, you've mentioned all these war-torn areas where there's, you know, a lot of uh, 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 infighting, political instability. What are some of the challenges that you've often confronted with and how do you manage to navigate through them? I think one of the significant challenges that we, we met this year, um, it sort of arose from a series of uh, attacks against medical facilities, uh, doctors without borders facilities, but also others that we are aware of in contemporary conflicts. And in particular, Syria and Yemen, 
Um, I think one incident that stands out in particular for us now, it's been a year after, but still uh, the, the wound is pretty raw, uh, very uh, very tragic event for us. Last year in October when U.S. military, uh, US military plane uh, conducted an airstrike and hit and destroyed uh, a Doctors Without Borders um, trauma center in uh, Kunduz in Afghanistan. And this claimed the lives of 42 people, uh, among 14 were, were our colleagues. Um, and so we've seen these kinds of situations uh, continue where during an active conflict, um, other members of a uh, coalition forces or in some instances, uh, militaries um, that uh, are attached to four out of the five UN Security Council members. So therefore, um, the UK, the US, uh, Russia or China, uh, who are actively involved in these conflicts are actively uh, bombarding or targeting medical care, uh, medical facilities. And this is at a time when the population in those conflict zones uh, are in particular dire need of, of medical care. So patients and uh, medical staff find, find very little safe space to work. Uh, we know that uh, between October last year and now, uh, at least 25 attacks in total against uh, medical facilities that MSF uh, run or doctors at our borders run. And yeah. uh, this is of grave concern. And we've seen uh, a, a, this year at least quite a, a strong indication that there's a lack of political will to actually stop this from happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not something that should be taken lightly. It definitely is a violation of the laws of war. Mm-hmm. And as terrible and as horrible as war is, we know that there are certain rules that uh, that that govern how hostilities uh, can be conducted by the belligerents, the people involved in this. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the most important things is that medical care, uh, be it either ambulances or hospitals or doctors, nurses, medical staff, patients, civilians, these people are not legitimate targets during times of conflict. And this is being uh, violated in, in entirely. And it's a very worrying situation. Yeah, I can imagine also that uh, it takes a lot of planning from your side in terms of uh, getting all the aid to the different, um, you know, uh, war-stricken countries or, or, or famine-stricken countries. How does the MSF plan to further improve uh, the lives of the people in the coming year? So normally, uh, if we uh, if we look at the number of people that uh, are given medical treatment by our projects in, in close uncertainty countries around the world, uh, we're looking at about 9 million people who receive free medical care from doctors at our borders teams on the ground. And it's normally a mix of people uh, from various countries. We work with international teams and local teams uh, in most of the places where, where we operate. And the backbone of that uh, provision of medical care is um, a very well-oiled logistics machine that's able to dispatch the medical equipment and the material that are required by our teams. To give you an example, sometimes this may mean that we, we have to resort to um, unusual means. So, uh, for instance, we've sometimes had to send supplies on the backs of, uh, of donkeys in some parts. In other parts, we will do outreach activities on horseback or on motorcycles in the DRC. In Haiti this year after Hurricane Naki, many of the remote villages we were able only to reach uh, by using helicopters. So it really means uh, for us that we have to adapt our response to the situation that we find on the ground. And sometimes there are administrative difficulties that we have to um, 
that we have to uh, also face, uh, but none of that will stop us from providing medical care to people in need when they need that uh, care, and our ability to provide it in an independent way, free from any political uh, or any uh, any. Uh, we provide medical care without any agenda. So mm-hmm. for us, when we look at people, we don't see civilians or soldiers or refugees or migrants. Mm. We see a child, we see a woman, we see a man, we see patients. Yeah. That is what we see and that's that motivates our commitment to continue providing medical care. Bori, thank you very much for that insightful discussion that we just had right now with regards to uh, what MSF is doing. Continue with the good work that you're doing. Thank you very much. If people want to uh, support our work, if you're in South Africa, easiest way to do that is to send uh, the word J-O-I-N, so join, and you can SMS it to the number 41486. Mm-hmm. And that provides us with an immediate donation, uh, a small amount, that allows our work to remain independent and partial and neutral. Well, thank you very much for that. That was Bori Lagrange, Head of Communications at Doctors Without Borders or MSF. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. All Lesotho nationals living in South Africa illegally have until the 31st of December 2016 to pay for the Lesotho special permit or face deportation. Application centers have opened up at six Lesotho border posts to receive the applications. Applications made this year will be received and the supporting documents can be submitted in the year 2017 by the end of March. If you are one of those that still have not applied and you are traveling to and from Lesotho, then use the mobile visa facilitation centers at the six border posts. And if you are unsure about what to do, then phone the VSF call center on 087-230-0411. That's 087-230-0411. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Ten minutes before the top of the hour, six o'clock, meaning that uh, Neto Cheman is on standby with the latest from the sports desk. Here is giving you the latest. Good evening, sport fans. With the latest Channel Africa Sport News at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. Starting off with football news. 
Argentina have finished 2016 at top of the FIFA rankings ahead of Brazil and Germany, while South Africa remained outside the top 50. Brazil and 2014 FIFA World Cup winners Germany completed the top three, while France finished as the so-called mover of the year after gaining the most points since December 2015. Traditional powerhouses such as England on 13, Italy on 16 and the Netherlands on 22 finished the year outside the top 10. African side Guinea-Bissau made the biggest jump in 2016, moving up 78 spots since last year and now sit in the 68th spot, just 8 behind Bafana Bafana, who remained unchanged in the 60th position. Africa's highest ranked nation is Senegal in the 33rd position, one ahead of the Ivory Coast. Bafana Bafana coach Ifram Sheikh Mashaba has been fired as national coach for gross misconduct and violation of the SAFA communications policy. The hearing took place over five days in December, the 5th to the 7th, the 9th and the 12th and was chaired by an independent legal expert who is an advocate of the High Court. Mashaba was hauled over the coals to answer the challenges related to his conduct in Pulukwani on November the 12th after the match between Bafana Bafana and Senegal. According to SAFA, the chairman of the hearing con- concluded that the coach was guilty of the three charges leveled against him, namely gross misconduct or professional misconduct, gross insubordination or professional misconduct, and violation of the SAFA communications policy. SAFA CEO Dennis Mumble explains. Decided that it is best for us to release the coach. Well, first and foremost, you know, we have a communications policy that we are enforcing uh, and one of the counts was clearly that he's violated the communications policy of the association the other one was just that he you know it's, it's gross insubordination and the uh, the third count was really the misconduct on the day of the match of the 12th of November 2016 uh, those are really the three areas that we level charges against him and uh, he was found guilty on all three of those. On to netball news. England Netball have announced the Rose squad, which has been selected to take part in the next Vitality Netball International Series as part of the Netball Quad Series. England will once again face Australia, New Zealand and South Africa in a series of games. The first half of the series will be played in Durban, South Africa, before the second half of the competition moves to England. Once again, Ama Agbiz will lead the side with England's most capped player, Jack Clark, taking on the role of vice-captain. In cricket news, England have outnumbered India 4-1 in the ICC's Test Team of the Year, despite their 4-0 defeat in the recent series. Alastair Cook has been picked to captain the year's best 15, as chosen by Rahul David, Gary Kirsten and Kumar Sangakara, while Joe Root, Johnny Pestor and Ben Stokes are also included. India have just one representative in prolific off-spinner, Ravichandram Ashwin, who has been named Cricketer of the Year and Test Cricketer of the Year. But the awards were decided on the period between September the 14th, 2015 and September the 20th, 2016, so England's hammering on the subcontinent was not taken into consideration. Moving on to Olympics news. After failing to qualify for the 2016 Rio Olympics, Roland Schumann has now set his eyes on the Tokyo Games in 2020. Schumann, who last won an Olympic gold medal in 4x100 freestyle and a silver medal in the 100m freestyle in Athens in 2004, wants to give it one more try before he could retire. 
Beckham, the most successful South African of all times. Schumann, having qualified for the Olympic Games on four successive occasions since 2000, is eyeing the next Olympics, making it unprecedented fifth time. That'll be a decision I'll make at the time. Mm-hmm. In two years' time, I'll give myself a two-year break. I'm gonna, I'll swim and I'll train and I'll be fit and do various other exercises like run and cross-training and crossfit and cycling and everything. I want to stay fit. I want to be... You know, dedicate more time to golf, dedicate more time to my family, dedicate more time to being in South Africa and you know, and trying to find business interests. So it's, you know, I'll, like I said, in two years' time, I'll, I'll have a clear understanding if I want to go for the Olympics or if I don't. So hopefully I do. The American-based South African swimmer, who was so eager to write history, has blamed the changing of coaches from John Tiskina of South Africa to American coaches of the year he failed to lift the gold medal. I think there's certain decisions are made... Um, Moving to a different coach a year before the Olympics probably wasn't the wisest thing to do. Not trusting myself enough to know that I have the knowledge. Um, but not everything happens for a reason. But you know, ended off the year on a high note to the World Cup. So I'm, you know, despite all the disappointment during the year, not making the Olympics to end the year on a high note is, is a positive thing for me. Thank you for tuning in to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Recapping top stories on Africa Digest this hour that a Roman Catholic Church issues a strong plea to political leaders to strike a deal by Christmas to stir to stem the crisis over the fate of President Joseph Kabila and Zambia and Zimbabwe sign a memorandum of understanding to run the Casa Univisa that wraps up Africa Digest today. From myself, Tato Tolo, producer Lebu Musweu, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email, info at channelafrica.com or send us an SMS on plus 27823325905. Taking us to the top of the hour is the legendary Jonathan Gwangwa with the song titled Mora. Do enjoy.